to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Scripture reading this morning is taken from Romans chapter 4. Verses 1 through 8, if you do not have your own Bible with you, Romans 4 can be found on page 941 of the Blue Pew Bible. Romans 4, verses 1 through 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies The ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The word of our Lord. We need uh, God's grace as we come to his word. Let us let us pray. Oh, Lord, if if you do not move in our hearts, if your spirit does not take the word and apply it to our hearts. Um, Even as believers, we will be unbelievers, Lord. We, in a given day, in a given hearing of your word, we will not hear it with profit. We will not submit to it. We will not cherish it. We will not search it out, explore it, be interested in it. We will not believe it. We will not think about it during the week. We will not apply it to our lives. We will not be changed by it. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would make this word to produce in us fruit. And we pray that it would build up our faith, that it would draw us after Christ, that it would release us from sin and enable us to walk more and more in the likeness of our Savior. Bless us, Lord, to this end, for we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. You know, one of the 
One of the most common complaints about the church is, uh, for those who've experienced AA, is how much unlike AA the church is. Uh, Alcoholics, Anonymous. Not to say that I agree with everything that goes on in their view of any kind of God, etc. But that, that fundamental sense that people have talked about in being at those kinds of meetings and the utter helplessness of the people that are there, the, the way each person stands up and confesses, I'm Darwin Jordan, I'm an alcoholic. The vulnerability of that, the transparency of that, just the utter helplessness to say, this is who I am. And then to feel like everybody there accepts you, that everybody there is broken as well, that everybody there is just as helpless as you. And nobody's looking down on you. Nobody looks like they're more righteous than you are. And the question comes up again and again, why is it the church like that? Not that we've all, you know, ex-alcoholics, of course, but that our view of sin, our brokenness in regard to sin, doesn't cause us to be that kind of a body for people. That when a person comes into the church, and just the church is known for that, you know, just the, the, the worldwide church, the church in America is just known. You go in among those people, and they're broken people. They're humble people. You can unload your heart. You can unload your burdens. You can talk about, and they will guard you, and they'll be discreet, and they'll cover you, and they'll draw near to you because they're just as broken. Not really the common understanding, is it? The common view of the church. In fact, many times we hear almost the opposite, don't we? Almost the opposite. In fact, we all feel probably when we're at church that we're the most guarded. Not the least guarded. <laughs> like This isn't where oh, I can just really let down and tell people what I'm like. Many times it's the opposite. We're trying to put up a big front for each other. Trying to demonstrate that one thing I'm not is really a, much of a sinner. You know? I mean, that, that's just the way we have created an atmosphere many times. And we probably aren't the best and probably not the worst. You know, we, I wish we were better, but I'm glad we're no worse at that, actually. But this passage, this whole dealing of Paul with the, the Jews and his presentation of the gospel to these, the Romans to whom he hasn't seen yet, the, the, the laying out of his whole gospel that he proclaimed among the Jews in their synagogues, he, he has this constant interplay back and forth. They, they call it sometimes the Jewish interlocutor, the person that he's debating always. This, this Jewish person, and some think it's Paul himself that he's debating with. It's that Paul's really the interlocutor. That, that he's talking to this person he used to be, how he used to view things as a faithful Jew. And he continues here in chapter 4. And in this, at this case, he's, he's going to deal with Abraham because... 
Abraham, it's not just an example of faith as he has been talking about faith and how it's only faith in Christ that brings one into acceptance with God. Abraham is critical because he's the forefather. He's the paradigm. He's the one example, not just example. It's He's, he, he's the way that they entered into covenant with God. And so, however he entered into covenant with God, that set the course for the whole nation. That's what being in the covenant means. That's what being righteous before God means. Abraham defines it. And actually, as we're going to see, Paul takes a different view than the Jewish interpretation of Genesis chapter 15. And if the Jewish interpretation of Genesis 15, 6 is right, then Paul's gospel is wrong. That's how critical this is. This, this argument right here for Paul is, is, a, is the linchpin. This demonstrates why his gospel is true and why it carries forth the true nature of the Old Testament, the heart of the Old Testament of faith in God. So what we're going to do first is look at the Jewish interpretation of Abraham as a kind of background so we kind of understand what is, what is Paul going for here? Why is he dealing with this in this way? So we'll look first at the Jewish interpretation of Abraham. Then secondly, we'll look at Paul's attack on the Jewish interpretation. And he does it by first quoting Genesis 15 in verse 3, as we've just read and then discussing it in verses 4 and 5. And then in Midrashic fashion, in in, uh, Jewish homiletical interpretive fashion, he then goes from the law, Genesis 15, to what would be called the prophets, because David was regarded as a prophet, and he quotes the Psalms. So this was, in in fact, one commentator has said that this is the best example, one of the most excellent examples of Midrash, which is Jewish interpretation, that we have anywhere in the ancient uh, literature. And, of course, it's given by this Jew, Paul, who's now a Christian. And he's giving us this lengthy exposition of Abraham. This is one of the most precious things in all of Scripture, is Paul's. This is banging, isn't it? Switch to this if you want. I'll, I'll, I'll stick close to it. I try not to duck down and lose my... You know, I was just kidding. <clears throat> so, um, Paul's attack on the Jewish interpretation, first looking at Genesis 15 and then in Psalm 32. So, the Jewish uh, background. Uh, it's interesting when he says, what shall we say was gained, or the word could be translated as found. Some of your translations may have that. And that's an interesting word because in the Old Testament, uh, there's the, the regularly used word found favor. You've, you've heard it like in Exodus 13, <clears throat> the Lord says, uh, I will do this thing for you because you have found favor in my sight. Or uh, Moses prays, if I have found favor. This is the same word as in Luke 1. The angel said, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Or in Acts 7, in Stephen's uh, sermon, David found favor in the sight of God. Even Hebrews chapter 4, where it says, let's draw with confidence to the throne of grace where we will find grace or favor to help in time of need. 
That word favor is the word grace. So there is likely, in Paul's beginning here, what should we say that Abraham found in regard to grace, in regard to God's favor in this passage? Now, he is speaking in an important fashion about Paul because of the Jewish interpretation of Abraham. They believe, they would quote this verse that he was, that, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But their word, first of all, they believed it, re, it was re, uh, built around his faithfulness to God. Number one, that he exercised circumcision in chapter 17. And then also that in chapter 22, he sacrificed Isaac. So Jewish interpretation was this, that he was faithful and he was declared righteous because he was faithful to God's covenant. He was faithful because he became circumcised and he was faithful and declared righteous because he exercised such faithfulness in the offering up of Isaac himself. And so Paul is very conscious that this ran counter to his gospel, and he is going to run head on into this normal or least widely accepted way of thinking about Abraham. Listen to this quote from Sirach, chapter 44. That's a Jewish writing in the Apocrypha. Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations, and no one has been found like him in glory. He kept the law of the Most High and entered into a covenant with him, He certified the covenant in his flesh, okay, that's circumcision, and when he was tested, he proved faithful. There's Genesis 22 with Isaac. Therefore, the Lord assured him with an oath that the nations would be blessed through his offspring. See, it was because of his faithfulness that God promised him these things. In Maccabees chapter 2, it says, Was not Abraham found faithful when tested, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? So, Genesis 22 in the offering of Isaac is put together with Genesis 15 in Jewish interpretation. And so it was said that Abraham was found faithful, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, Paul is entering into the fray with what he believes is the true interpretation of Genesis 15 that is in accord with his gospel. And that's, you see, they will be coming at him saying, what you're saying is out of accord with the whole Old Testament. It's out of accord with our father Abraham. He says, no, it is not. It is right in accord with how the whole covenant began with Abraham. That is his argument. And so he quotes then the passage. First of all, he sets it up. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Now, this is a reference to what he has said in chapter 2, verse 17, of how you Jews are boasting in God, or verse 23 of that chapter, you boast in the law. And then chapter 3, 27, he speaks of uh, what becomes of our boasting 
It's excluded because it's not by what we do. It's in our depending upon God that we are rescued, not in something we do. So he's attacking this Jewish boast, this Jewish presumption that because we are the elect of God and we have continued to carry out the the covenant of circumcision, we've continued to keep the Sabbath, we've continued to keep the food laws and all the rituals, then we are the privileged among the world. And they began to look down their noses at others outside the covenant. And so instead of the law causing them to see their own sinfulness first and foremost, as he says in chapter 3, verse 20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law should have caused them to be humble before God, dependent upon his mercy. No, the law built them up in such a way that they presumed upon God's mercy, didn't really think they needed God's mercy like the world did, like the Gentiles did. They didn't need repentance like the Gentiles. And Paul says, ultimately, you have a hardened and unrepentant heart and you don't even see your own sinfulness. So here he says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. And when he says not before God, he basically says, now, whatever men's view of it is, that's not God's view. That's not God's view of it. For he was not justified by works. And so then he quotes. So here's Paul's attack on the Jewish interpretation. He's basically just looking at the text and and asking What does it say? What does the text say? And when does it say it? He even argues as we get on into uh, verses 9 and following, he believed in this chapter he was circumcised later. And circumcision had nothing to do with what happened in chapter 15. Paul is just going to the scripture and pointing out what is there. So he says, Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, everyone would agree this counting as righteousness doesn't mean so much that the person is acceptable in completion, but that he is declared righteous. But what's the basis of that declaration? Are they declared righteous because of something they have done? Or are they declared righteous because of their helpless dependence upon God? And then he begins immediately to discuss it using the basic knowledge of commerce that anyone understands. And it's interesting because in verse 5, he's going to describe really the faith of Abram at that point, and he calls him Abraham here. But he's going to discuss the faith of Abraham. I want you to look at that first because verse 4 is the contrast. But in in verse 5, he's basically describing what happened with Abraham. Because that's the context. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And he says, now, if you're working, it's one thing. But to the one who does not work, but trusts, but believes like Abraham did. Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So on the one hand, there is trust. There is grace. And there's righteousness. He says in verse 4, if you work, 
It's not counted as a gift. That word gift is grace. It's not grace. It's, it's wages. It's, it's what's owed to you. So he puts these two contrasts before them. And he's asking which one describes Genesis 15. Did he work or did he trust? See, that's the thrust of his statement. Now, if you're working, you're earning a paycheck, you get something at the end of the week and they owe it to you. You've worked your 40 hours and if they don't pay you, you can take legal action, okay? You don't take your check and fall down on your knees and say, thank you, oh, thank you. for I can't believe you would do this for me this week. Why would you do this? Why would you give me this $200? I can't believe it. You probably have never said that, have you, to an employer? No, it would be the opposite. If you showed up to get your $200 or $500 or $1,000, whatever it is, and they said, sorry, I don't have it, you wouldn't be saying, well, I didn't deserve it anyway. I mean, it, I, I didn't think I would get it, but I was just hoping maybe you'd be gracious to me and give it to me, but that's fine, no problem. You wouldn't because he owes it to you, and you're, you're going to be creating havoc right there because you're not getting paid. So that's the idea of verse 4, but now he says that is not what happened with uh, Abram. In fact, this is shocking Shocking that he would say that. The phrase justifying the ungodly. Uh, first of all, of course, this is uh, a direct counter to statements like Exodus 23, 7. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the ungodly or the wicked. The same phrase. God says, I do not do that. And yet, of course, through Christ, he has created a circumstance in which he will do that and is able to do that because sin has been placed upon Christ. But what's striking about this is that he puts Abram in the category of the ungodly. Now, the word ungodly and sinner in the Old Testament was always describing those outside the covenant. Those Gentiles, the wicked, the sinners that are standing outside the people of God, that do not have the favor of God, that are living in rebellion to God. In Galatians chapter uh, 2, Paul even says, hey, we're not of Gentile sinners, we're of the Jews. He then says, but we still have to trust in Christ like they do. But there is that sense of the Gentile sinner. And so, as Byrne has said, here he is making the Gentile stance before God the norm. In fact, the way the Gentiles come to faith is the way Abram came to faith. And that's why Paul says you cannot turn the Gentiles away because the father of the Jews came to faith in this way. And what did God do for Abram? He justified the ungodly. Chrysostom says this is all the more striking because Abram was a man of great deeds, of great faithfulness. If there was anybody that could bring something before God, it would have been Abram. After all, he 
was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. Was there ever a more noble, more amazing act of faith in all of Scripture? His faithfulness. You can see why the Jews would likely latch on to that and connect it with chapter 15 and say, he, he got this because of his faithfulness. That's why he was declared righteous. And Paul says, no, when you go back to it, he did not work anything. He did not do anything. He helplessly depended on the one who declares righteous the ungodly. And he was declared accepted by God because of it. And then he brings in as a further proof of the meaning of Genesis 15, of the right interpretation of this passage, David speaking in Psalm 32. And in case you, you and I maybe looked at uh, this counting to him as righteousness in a, in a bad way, for instance, some might say, well, he didn't count works as righteousness, but he looked at his faith and that counted as righteousness in the sense of he earned righteousness by his faith. And this is where this is corrected in verse six, in case we had misinterpreted that, because he says, David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. In other words, he puts righteousness to them. He puts it to their account apart from works. It's very explicit in the language in the original. God declares them righteous. He puts them in a righteous condition, and it has nothing to do with their works, totally apart from their works. And then he quotes David. And these phrases are obviously all synonymous with counts righteous. Here they are. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. So forgiveness must be a vital part of this counting as righteous because he goes on and says, here is the same thing. David says the same thing. So if you are declared righteous before God, it's obvious your sins have been forgiven. They've been taken away because he has full favor. You're, you're in his full favor. And the second phrase, whose sins are covered. So sins being forgiven or sins being covered so that they're seen no more. They're not held against you anymore. It's as though in terms of God's, uh, of your guilt and God's condemnation, they don't exist in terms of condemnation. And then the final phrase, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So he has sin, but it's not going to be counted against him, you see. It's not going to be put to his account, put to his ledger, and then he bears the brunt and the condemnation and the punishment for that sin. So all of these phrases mean basically the same thing. You're counted as righteous. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are covered. Your sins are not put to your account. You're declared in the most favorable way. You're declared in God's absolute favor. You're declared righteous in his sight. And so it is not, as he begins to talk in verse 9, is it only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Then he goes on to say, hey, he received this while he was uncircumcised. Here you're Jews, as he's already said, you're depending on your circumcision. 
In Galatians 2, you're depending on your food laws. You're depending on the Sabbath. You're depending on all of these religious things to uphold you in a righteous state before God. And here you are holding on to circumcision and saying that the Gentiles have to be circumcised or else we're not going to even have fellowship with them because they're really not accepted by God. They're really not in his favor unless they receive circumcision. And he says, Abraham was not circumcised when he was received by God. Abraham was received by faith. Abraham came and trusted in the God who declares the ungodly righteous. Abraham was treated, in a sense, as a Gentile who was declared righteous by God. And now you're excluding Gentiles? And so he comes to attack that whole view that would strip clean this idea of the helpless dependence of Abraham for righteousness and turn it into some accomplishment on the part of Abraham, whether his circumcision or his faithful action in, uh, with uh, Isaac as being a basis for his acceptance. Now, this is Paul's contention that this was the heart Always the heart of true relationship to God. It was always the heart for every Jew to be broken before God, to be dependent upon this God, and to recognize this is the God who has mercy on the ungodly. This is the God who will cover my sin. This is the God who will not count my sin against me. And in that context, you see, to give him praise and adoration, to spend their lives in love for others and to look even upon the Gentile, though separating themselves in the sense of not doing the wickedness of the Gentiles, showing forth love to the stranger as they were commanded. This this had changed dramatically in the Jewish religion. So that, well, well, we'll get to that in a bit as we talk about Luke 15. I want to address, first of all, those of you who may have never trusted in Christ. And you may still, even though you've been in the church for years, you may still feel like this comment, this one phrase, justifies the ungodly, is beneath you. There may be some of you who think that that's just beneath you. And what's interesting is you must trust him who justifies the ungodly. You must recognize that that's the only God that you can deal with. And that's the only way to approach this God is to recognize not only that you are the ungodly, that you are not by nature one who worships God, which is the root of that word. That You're not by nature one who has taken God as the treasure in your life. You don't by nature walk in love and adoration and praise and dependence to the, uh, uh, before this God. That you come and recognize that you are this kind of gracious God who would forgive me and declare me righteous in your sight only because of your mercy and not because of anything in me. That's a fundamental 
the fundamental approach to God. And it's illustrated by the one who initiated the covenant, with whom God initiated the covenant. It set the tone for all covenant religion, true covenant religion. At the heart, it is this justification of the ungodly. We have no hope. We bring nothing to the table. We bring no works at all. We only are declared righteous by his grace. Does that mark your life? Do you have that freedom in your life? The freedom to admit your sin, the freedom to admit the depths of your own motives, of what you've done against other people, the way you've hurt other people, the way you've betrayed other people in your life, the way you've lied, the way you've lusted, all of these things. Do you have the freedom to come before God and say, Oh Lord, you are the one who declares righteous the ungodly, and I admit I am not like you. I do not worship you by nature. I do not do your will by nature. Coming to him in any other way is not coming to this God. This is the only God, the one who justifies the ungodly. Then you understand that everybody's on the same level. You understand that you might look at Abraham and say, well, gosh, look at Abraham's life. Look at all the amazing things he did. Look how he sacrificed or was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. What a proof of his faithfulness. And God says, yeah, but I justified him the same way I justify you. Everybody's on the same level. And that's where we're all AA here, okay? We're all SA, Sinners Anonymous. I'm a sinner. Darwin Jordan, and you say, hey, Darwin Jordan, sinner, we're sinners too. We have found grace just like you. That's all we are. Now, we're not just any more sinners in the sense that God has transformed us and is transforming us. We have been brought into a whole new relationship with God, a whole new uh, manifestation of his grace that enables us to walk a different life. Yes, But at heart, by nature, as Paul would say in Romans 7, that is, in my flesh dwells no good thing. That's the confession of every person. Apart from God, in my flesh dwells no good thing, we say with Paul. And so I urge you in the second place, those of you who are believers, never lose the heart of Christianity or that is, of the whole relationship with God, Old or New Testament. But never lose the heart of Christianity, that we trust in Christ alone, that we bring nothing at all, because you will constantly rediscover your own ungodliness as you grow in grace. It it struck me some years ago, wait a minute, if I make any progress in grace, it's going to be because I discover something else that's bad in me. And that's not a happy prospect, you know. So my life is going to be constantly seeing something else I need to change and something else I need to change and something else I need to change. (sighs) That's pretty depressing, you know. And many times along the way, as you discover something, in fact, in your marriage or with your children or with somebody else, you discover something in your heart that you didn't even know was there. And it's easy to say, am I a believer at all? 
And it's easy to drift away. It's easy to get jaundiced. It's easy not to keep thinking. It's simply that He justifies me and accepts me as righteous in spite of all that I am and anything I ever discover in myself. There was never a reason why I accepted you in the first place. It'll never become a reason why I accept you again. It's always because you now, trusting in Christ, are associated with Him. We just read, grafted into Christ. Isn't that a powerful image? Being grafted into a tree and joined to that tree, receiving life from that tree, always associated with that tree. And through Christ, we have a righteousness that gives us this standing before God. And we must always depend upon that standing and that standing alone. And this, in the third place, will give us a humility in regard to unbelievers and a desire to see them brought to Christ. In Luke 15, before the parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the prodigal son, he says he spoke to the Pharisees and they were bitterly complaining and grumbling because he was mixing it up with sinners. And he tells these parables about the joy in heaven over the lost one being found and the illustration of the coin being found, the illustration of the sheep being found, the illustration of the father who was so overjoyed and ran down the road to embrace his son. And he was contrasting that with the Pharisees because of their self-righteousness, because of their presumption of God's mercy, that they didn't need that kind of mercy. They didn't need that kind of repentance They despised sinners and they had no heart to see them brought to to salvation. How much righteousness, how much presumption may be in our hearts that we don't long for sinners to come to know Christ? Is there a lack of brokenness in my life? Is there a lack of understanding that he justifies the ungodly? And so... That presumption shows itself in its works, see. That's why he could say to the Jews in the second chapter, you're storing up not good things, but you're storing up wrath in the day of wrath and judgment. Because, for instance, on a Sabbath day, there's a man with a withered hand and Jesus is about to heal him. Do they care about the man with the withered hand? No, all they care about is that he's about to, in their mind, break the Sabbath. For that kind of life, there'll be judgment because that kind of life has not come to the point of seeing, I must be justified by this God for I am ungodly. May we enter into the freedom of that kind of forgiveness through the grace of Jesus. Let us pray. O Lord, we praise you that you cover our sins. We praise you that you do not count our sins against us. We praise you that you forgive our sins. We praise you that you count us as righteous through Jesus Christ. We praise you that in our forever being joined to him, his righteousness becomes ours and his standing with you becomes ours. We praise you that even from the beginning, there's this revelation that Abram himself 
was justified through faith and not by works. Lord, may we not fall into that trap ourselves. May we not be given to that pride and that presumption that we could ever do anything or ever bring anything before you that could earn your favor or your acceptance, but only come as helpless and broken, recognizing that it is God, it is God alone who can declare us righteous. We only depend upon Him. Oh Lord, we pray, give us this faith. Give us this freedom. Make us a people where it is safe to talk about our failure. It is safe to talk about what we really are and that we all as sinners will be dependent upon Your grace, being transformed continually as we experience your love and forgiveness. Bless us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?